Hi there, esteemed audience, and welcome to another episode of Middle Grade Ninja. I'm Rob Kent, as you know, the author of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees, which Richard Adams, author of Watership Down, called a most original and amusing piece of work. And who, who would we be to doubt Richard Adams? Surely he knows. Uh, this is a book about an 11-year-old Batman, Iron Man-type character who solves mysteries and fights giant robot bees with his sidekick, Ellicott Skullworth. Uh, it is available as an audiobook narrated by the excellent David Radke, the paperback you see me holding, and then the ebook is free to download whenever you're listening to this, wherever fine ebooks are sold. Get yourself a copy of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees. Uh, if you like it, even if you don't like it, please leave me a review. That helps me out. Uh, get yourself ready for Banneker Bones and the Alligator People that will be coming here in the next couple of months. And believe me, when it comes out and we have a firm date, I won't be able to stop talking about it. Uh, under the super secret pen name Robert Kent, I have written a young adult novel altogether now, a zombie story about a 15-year-old boy in the zombie apocalypse trying to get his zombie-infected brother Chuck, who's six years old, to where he believes there is a cure for the zombie virus. This is a mean, violent novel. Uh, all the zombie carnage you've come to expect. If you like The Walking Dead, you're going to love altogether now a zombie story. Uh, but there isn't any profanity. So it's got that going for it. Also available is All Right Now, a short zombie story set in the same universe. Uh, and then I've also written The Book of David, uh, which is a long serialized horror novel in the style of Stephen King. Uh, it is five chapters long. It is uh, an atheist buys a haunted house that then begins to give him religious visions involving UFOs and flying saucers. So you know right away whether that's something that you're interested in or not. Although his wife, Miriam Walters, is an author of middle grade fiction who is actively crafting a middle grade series and querying agents and editors whilst in a haunted house. Uh, the first chapter of the Book of David, chapter one, uh, is available to download for free whenever you're watching this. So go ahead and get yourself a copy of the Book of David if that sounds interesting to you. If you like it, come see me for three, I'm sorry, two, three, four, five, uh, and bring money. Uh, coming up on the Middle Grade Ninja podcast, we are going to have a guest here on Thursday, March 7th. Uh, Stephen K. Smith, author of the Virginia Mystery Series, is going to be here with us to share some of his uh, insights into being uh, an indie uh, middle grade author. Uh, he's got a um, film deal in development for the Virginia Mystery Series. That's going to be a fascinating conversation. Next week, we're going to have Lamar Giles here to talk about his new book, The Last Last Day of Summer. I'm very excited about that conversation. He's one of the founders of We Need Diverse Books. So I'm going to have all kinds of questions uh, for Lamar. Uh, and then uh, on uh, what date? March 18th. We're going to have Kathy Appelt here. And if you don't know who Kathy Appelt is, you don't really like middle grade fiction. Uh, Kathy Appelt, of course, is the author of The Underneath and many other classic middle grade novels. Uh, so stay tuned. Uh, if you like the show, if you're interested to know more about authors, literary agents, publishing professionals, uh, log on to middlegradeninja.com. I've got interviews with hundreds of both, including an interview with today's guest, uh, literary agent with Indri with Andrea Brown Literary Agency, uh, Jennifer March Soloway. Jennifer, how are you today? I'm very well, thank you. Thanks, Rob, for having me. 
Thank you so much for being here. This is going to be a fascinating conversation. I'm very <laughs> excited to pick your brain. Yeah. Uh, so if you would just uh, give the themed audience kind of an overview of your background uh, and your expertise. Yeah. Um, so I studied journalism in college. And then after that, I went on to uh, a career in marketing and public relations. I worked in banking, uh, nonprofit healthcare that was aimed at children and uh, and lastly in toys. And um, so except for the banking, most of my career was really aimed at marketing to kids and understanding what kids are drawn to and what they like. Um, and when I was working um, in the toy company, I had, I ran their contests, I did their catalogs, and we did, I ran their booth at Toy Fair. But one of the things I also did was I was the in toy inventor liaison. And what does that mean? That meant that I got to tour the country and meet with toy inventors. <laughs> And they would present their ideas to me. They would pitch their ideas to me. Um, our company had a really strong in-house design team. And so we rarely bought any outside concepts. However, we were always looking for that one extraordinary idea. And so when I found those, I would turn around and pitch those ideas to my company internally. If they agreed with me, then I would turn around and negotiate the contract with the inventor. And so when I, then after that, I went and I got an MFA in creative writing with an emphasis in young adult literature. And uh, later on, I got an opportunity to work for Laura Rennert as her assistant at the Andrea Brown Literary Agency. She's the executive agent at our agency. Um, and as I started to work for her, I really just started to find out more about the business I was writing and I loved children's lit and wanted to find out more. And the more I started working for Laura, the more I just loved everything about agency. I felt like it just pulled all of my skills together. My, I love to work editorially with uh, writers. Um, I love to read and I love to consider how to market things and how to pitch things. I like to look at contracts for language and make sure that every, you know, make sure that the language best supports the client and that it's a good agreement. I even like to look at royalty statements and to see, make sure everybody's getting paid properly. Um, and, um, and also I realized as I was working for her that it was very similar to what I had been doing as a toy inventor liaison for my company, this idea of pitching and then pitching internally and then negotiating deals. So it kind of brought all my skill sets together and just has been a fantastic opportunity for me. And so I worked for Laura for about three and a half years and then I was promoted to agent and I've been doing it now for a couple of years and it's my dream job. It's a second career for me and I am so thrilled to have this chance. Well, it sounds like you already had a dream job and now you've got a second dream job. I am extremely jealous of your background. That's great. Yeah, that, it was fun working for the toy company for sure. <laughs> and uh, if you would give a uh, esteemed audience just kind of uh, some of your uh, clients. Yeah, so I'm relatively new, um, but I uh, my very first book is coming out or my book, my first client's published book is coming out um, in May. It's called Sumo Joe. And it is a picture book from Lee and Lowe by Mia Wenjin. I did not represent her, but I represented the illustrator, Nat Nawata, who illustrated it. Um, it's available for pre-order on many different local bookstore sites. And um, and then I've also last year uh, did a couple of young adult deals. One for a, one of my favorite books called *Private Lessons* by Cynthia Salese, and that is a book about a girl who is a um, concert pianist who gets an opportunity to study with an elite. 
piano teacher in San Francisco. And um, she's from a different part of the Bay Area. And so she's crossing, kind of crossing class lines and um, cultural lines to come and study with him. She enters this private school world and it's uncomfortable and new for her. And, um, and it's sort of a, the, her relationship with the piano teacher becomes very intense and somewhat inappropriate. So private lessons. Then um, I have another great project that I sold last year called This Is My America by Kim Johnson. And that book is um, also another one. Both of these, as soon as they came into my box, I read them and I was like, I know I need to represent these books. I love the writing, love the voice. Um, this Is My America is about a girl whose father is um, on death row for um, accused of killing or convicted of killing um, a couple in the community. and then she's trying to uh, save her father from death row. And in the meantime, her brother gets accused of killing a white girl in town. Yes. Oh, double jeopardy there. Oh no. So it's um, a social justice novel. It's a family story. Uh, it's a friendship story. There's a romance. Um, it's incredible. And the voice is incredible. Um, and Kim, and that was a two book deal done at a preempt. And so Kim's going to have a second book coming out. So that one's going to come out. In, both of those books will be coming out in 2020 and Kim will have a second book coming out in 2021. And Kim, if you're listening, as are any of your authors, if you'd like to come on Middle Grade Ninja, the podcast, and, and tell everybody about your new books, I would love to have you. I'd love to chat about them. That sounds fascinating. Yeah. Um, in terms of middle grade, I haven't sold anything yet. I do have a couple of great middle grade clients that I'm we're working on, and we're about to go on submission. So I can't talk about those yet, um, <laughs> but very fun and exciting. Um, and then I also uh, just sold another young adult novel and another uh, picture book this past month. Unfortunately, those haven't been announced publicly yet, so I can't talk about them yet, but I'm very excited about them. <laughs> I love it. You can hear your enthusiasm for your, your clients and your enthusiasm for agenting. The fact that you're calling their books my books. Yeah. I would be thrilled if that was my agent talking about my book. Yes, call it your book. Think of it that way. Uh, get, well, get it out there. It's definitely their book. Um, I feel so honored to represent them, though, and represent the projects. Um, I'm so proud of them. It's been incredible. And when you say that um, those books came in and you immediately loved them and knew you had to represent yeah. them for the folks that are watching or listening to this and are, are, are uh, thinking Jennifer March Soloway sounds like a top-notch agent. That's somebody I've got to get with right away. How can they hope to duplicate that experience? What was it about those books or those uh, queries that came in that immediately you said to you, you have to have this book? That's a great question. So. I would say most of my clients have come in to me through my query box, so just a cold submission. Although I do many conferences um, per year because I'm trying to get out and meet writers in person. And I have signed a few people that I've met at conferences. And actually there's another manuscript in my box right now that I met him at uh, two different events and I am strongly considering, <laughs> I think I'm gonna offer him representation. So if he's watching right now, <laughs> the answer is probably yes. Um, <laughs> I hope that there are five authors that are in your inbox that think that could apply to them and they all have this moment of hope. Oh, yes. <laughs> well, I should say I've got, a, I've got a number of great manuscripts in my box right now that, um, 
that I am in the process of reading. And unfortunately, I have so much reading to do. Um, I'm a little bit behind. But yes, there's a quite a, there's a number of people that I'm very strongly considering. And the one I just mentioned, I'm really considering. Um, so what draws me to a query? That's a great question. So um, for me, I love a great pitch. If you can raise a question in my mind that I need to know the answer for, I will sit up and read all night to find out. If you can really pull me in and raise a question, or maybe two or three, if I just need to know, I'm one of those people where I'll have to binge read until I can find out. Um, for this, for both of those um, queries, um, they came into my box and the voice was just incredibly strong. Both of those projects, the YAs, are closed, confiding first person narratives where I felt like um, that character was confiding to me secrets that they wouldn't tell anyone else. So it's a deeply intimate relationship that I have as a reader with the character and that's something I really enjoy. Um, I like to read for two different, I mean, I like to read for many reasons, but two, especially when I was um, reading YA as a younger kid, I, there were two things I really liked to read for. One was to read someone's experience and know that I wasn't alone, that someone else had experienced something that I'd felt. And um, I found that very gratifying and very helpful and hopeful and supportive. Um, also, additionally, I find that literature is the one way that I can step into someone else's shoes and experience the world in a way that I would never be able to experience as me with my with my personal history. Um, so I really enjoy that. If you can open up my mind to a new perspective and let me see the world through someone else's eyes in a deep, deeply intimate way, that's something I love. I'm very drawn to stories set in other cultures, other cultural experiences, other genders, other sexuality than mine, because I want to know what it's like to be those people and I want to relate and connect with them. And literature is, I feel like, is the one uh, medium better than film, better than anything else that's allowed me to really truly understand other people. I've always said one of the great tragedies of life is that you have to go through it as just one person. And there are so many incredible experiences out there that could be had. Mm -hmm. uh, that, that's something that brings me back both to writing and to, to reading as well as that opportunity to live multiple lifetimes within my one lifetime. Exactly. Like with private lessons, I am not Filipina. I am not a concert pianist. I have never competed on the stage in that regard. So it was really exciting for me to get into that character's mind and understand what that was like for her. Um, similarly, like understanding what it would be like to be um, a black girl with a father on death row, which I found incredibly um, just moving and compelling. And um, I was, you know, I was rooting for that character. I fell in love with that character right away. And that's, I would say, what I'm hoping to is fall in love with a story. So what is it uh, about a character that, that attracts you, that makes you fall in love with them uh, right off the bat? Yeah, I've thought about that a lot. Um, a lot of it has to do with voice. And I know everyone says, like, I'm looking for that great voice, that fresh voice, that voice I haven't heard before. Because hundreds of writers are pulling out their hair no, right now. No, no What does that mean? <laughs> do I have a voice? <laughs> <laughs> um, and I'm here to say, yes, yes, you do have a voice. Everybody's voice matters. And I truly believe that, um, part of it is getting your voice onto the page 
and developing that voice in the way that works best for the story. And there's so many different craft options that can work for different projects. Um, for me, I think with characters, a lot of it has to do, um, voice has to do with point of view, like the details that that character will see and why and and what what their eye is drawn to, what they make of it, how they interpret their world is a very interesting, um, well, I really like that about characters, especially when they see, they see or notice things that I just would never notice or think about. I'm like, wow, I love that. I love to read about people who think in very different ways from me. Like even, and that doesn't just have to be with like culture. That could be like, like I used to work with toy designers and those guys, all of them think very differently from me. I do not, I don't think in industrial design ways and I am fascinated by the way those brains work. So it can be, I think it's perspective. I think it's um, details that they see. I think it's um, their, their thoughts and understanding who that character is, what they care about, what they want most, um, what they, their biggest fears are. And I also think that um, it has to do with word choice and how, you know, the diction and how the character speaks on the page. Um, sometimes, you know, if you're, if you're, for example, working on a fantasy or a historical, sometimes like a third person point of view is a better way to create voice because it gives you more room to talk about a bigger world because we don't really talk about like, I am sitting in my kitchen, you know, with a clock behind me. You know, it's not natural in a first-person voice to necessarily talk that way. But in a third-person narrative, you can really describe your surroundings in a very effortless and flowing, well, I shouldn't say effortless, a seemingly effortless flowing way that's very accessible and paints this vivid, beautiful world. But I think, I think that's voice. Other than that, I don't know. Everybody can do it, but it takes a lot of revision and it takes a lot to get it right. Unfortunately. Yes. <laughs> we were talking uh, just a little bit about uh, diversity in publishing before we, we started here. Mm -hmm. And you've mentioned multiple diverse uh, voices that you're representing. You told me uh, something very interesting that you have almost an entire client list of, of diverse voices right now. Is that right? Well, I have a mix of client voices, uh, I would say, um, but I do have a fairly diverse list. And I, was, I said all of the published deals that I've had so far are diverse. Gotcha. With the exception of one. With the exception of one, yeah. There are so many questions I have for you about uh, okay. publishing and agenting and, and things I want to get to. But um, last time I chatted with uh, John Cusick, uh, my, my previous literary agent interview, I forgot to ask him the question I'm supposed to be asking everybody. So let's make sure before I forget, um, Jennifer March Soloway, do you believe in flying saucers? Yes or no? <laughs> well, I've never seen one. So the jury is still out. I, I believe in the possibility. How about that? <laughs> I think that is an excellent answer. <laughs> I'm telling you, esteemed audience, one of these days we're going to get a flying saucer story and it's going to make all this this questioning worthwhile. It's going to be amazing. I wish that I, I wish I'd had some kind of contact with outer space. That would be very cool. I think I might be doing, I might be writing my own books if that were the case. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I mean, you, you have so much to tell us. <laughs> so you'd have to share. Yeah. I know people who've seen them. I haven't seen one. It's on my bucket list. Um, before I go, please, let me let me just glimpse one. I feel like, yeah, I feel like that's not something you can actively seek. That's something that just will happen. 
don't know. Maybe there's like. Well, there are uh, multiple con men who disagree for large sums of money. They'll take you way out into the uh, boonies and show. They promise to show you a flying saucer. <laughs> I'm not advocating the service, <laughs> but it is available. All right, getting back to our regularly scheduled program. Um, what uh, you said that young adult is your sweet spot. So, what is it about young adults specifically that attracts you and, and that you like to represent? Um, well, I am still 16 in my head. If there was some age, like I am still 16, still fighting with my mother, still wearing all black, <laughs> still, you know, me too. Still <laughs> We're teenage. both in black today. Yeah, actually, this is Navy, I would point out to my mother if she were here right now. But <laughs> um, yeah, no, I think it's such a great time in your life where you're starting to have some independence and some autonomy, and yet you're still tethered to your parents, you still have to have, you know, they're still calling the shots. But it's that time where you're starting to really question who am I and where do I fit in the world? And where is my future? The other thing I love about young adult and actually children's books in general is they're about children and they're about teens and children have their whole lives ahead of them. Teens have their whole lives ahead of them. So even though even and I like really dark stories, even though everything could just be horrible and all this terrible stuff could happen. But the end of the book will end with hope because that teen has their whole life ahead of them or that child has their whole life ahead of him and they have a chance to make good. In an adult book, everyone can die, <laughs> everything can burn up. It can be mayhem and then just destruction and that's it. We end on a horrible note. But with, um, but with Children's Lit and with YA, there's hope at the end and I love that. And the story in my mind lives on. Would you consider a uh, young adult story that had a dark ending? Um, I think that, yeah, I mean, and I think, I mean, there's some books I've read that have some dark endings and there's some books I've considered that have hard endings, but at the same point in time, there's still gotta be hope. There's gotta be that, that hope that something that character has experienced the story and emerged stronger, wiser, better equipped to face the rest of their life. And even if not everything is perfect, we know that they're going to be able to manage better. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I'm, I'm also, never mind, I'm not going to say what I was thinking. Um, let's okay. talk a little bit about uh, Andrea Brown, um, because yeah. uh, I've had multiple agents um, kind enough from Andrea Brown to appear at the blog over the years. Again, available now at middleradeninja.com. Uh, if any of them are watching or listening, please reach out. I'd love to, to chat with you as well. Uh, but can you give us kind of just an overview of the services that an author can expect to receive when they sign with you or with Andrea Brown? Yeah. So we are a children's lit agency based in California, although we have agents in New York, Chicago, LA, San Diego, and the Bay Area. I personally am, am in San Francisco. Um, there are 11 of us total. Um, we're all women and there are four Jennifers, which I know is incredibly confusing. <laughs> I am the fourth Jennifer and Andrea jokes the last Jennifer that will work at our agency. Although, so the pressure was really on when you were hired. Yeah. They already had three. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I think that's not, I think that's not true, but yeah, it's a little confusing. <laughs> Jennifers. Um, 
I am the Jennifer with short hair. I'm the last Jennifer. And if you go to our website and you scroll all the way to the bottom, I'm the very bottom agent because I'm the newest. Um, anyway, we are a full service agency. We um, we like to represent uh, creators for the, the duration of their career. So we don't just sign people for one project, but we want to sign for a career. Um, we work, we work at, I, I'll talk about me for a moment. I work very editorially with my clients. My goal is to put our very best foot forward. And so I work editorially to try and help them elevate their story. And um, even when I take someone on, it's gotta be that good. And then I'll try and help them push it to the next level. And then before we go on submissions. So hopefully the editors have no reason to say no. Um, and then we negotiate contracts, we manage the payments for them, make sure that they get paid on time. We handle foreign rights deals in film and TV. Um, and uh, we help them, we guide them with their careers in terms of next projects and what's maybe the best step moving forward and how to best grow their career in the way that they wanna have a career. So for example, I, have, I work with a number of author illustrators who are interested in both writing their uh, their own projects, writing and illustrating their own projects, but also illustrating their own projects. And so, you know, sometimes we get a number of opportunities for them all at once and I'll help them kind of decide like where, how to best manage these projects so that they can still continue to work on their own projects, et cetera. That makes sense. And oh, I had a couple of uh, follow-ups. Oh, I wanted to ask you about um, when you're working with a client uh, editorially, um, mm -hmm. do you have an average number of drafts that you're likely to request? I assume it varies a little bit from, from client to client, but usually what kind of changes are you looking to make and willing to stick with an author while they make? Yeah. So I am, I'm willing to stick with an author through a long time. I mean, I think it's important to make sure that the project is the best it can be. Um, I always tell everyone I have three really good rounds in me where I feel like I can give a very sharp editorial eye and great feedback. Once I've read a project more than three times, I become closer to it and I know what the author's trying to do and I feel like I've lost some of my objectivity. I will still work with a client, but I'll let them know like, you know, I, I might not be as sharp or might not be noticing as much everything because, you know, once you get hit four or five rounds, you start to conflate some of the versions <laughs> in your mind. Um, so it's very, very important to me that my clients have other readers other than me and not just work with me. Also, I have a limited set of experience and there's just things that I'm going to miss. I think I'm good, but I'm not the end all be all. So, um, but that said, I will work with them until it's ready. There are a few clients I've taken on earlier that needed that I saw the potential and I loved the voice so much that I decided to help develop them and that takes a little bit longer. Um, and then there are some clients that I've signed and the projects are great and we turn around and sell it right away. So it just all depends on the project case by case. But I tell everyone, really maximize my editorial skills to best suit you. Know that I'm best on the first three rounds and so, you know, really take the time to revise in between those rounds so that you can get, you can maximize me. Well, that makes sense. I, I think with anybody, it's it's only fair to, if, if you've gotten three rounds and you, you still can't get what you need, it's time to find a, uh, not a new agent, but but some other uh, editorial help to, to guide you in the right direction. Well, I think it's important to get, um, to have other readers throughout the process because 
they're going to just they're going to catch things that you're not going to catch. There's you know just it's helpful to get different perspectives. Different people are going to notice different things. That's true. I've got a um, multiple critique partners that I use for every project, and uh, I've worked with them long enough. I know how to temper their opinion so that if I get the I get the same types of notes that that Shannon Alexander, for example, always gives me, that sometimes I'll look at something and say I really need to make that change, and other times I can look at something and say, well, that's a Shannon note. I've, I've had that before. Let's let's move forward. Exactly, exactly. And I think, yeah, in the editorial process, sometimes there are like little things that just really throw someone out of a text and they'll harp on that little thing and that's maybe not the bigger picture and it's really a small note. So yeah, the editorial process is, I love it and I love working with people and my goal is always to help them elevate their story. Um, I Different people have different styles. My style is um, with working with Laura, she articulated this the best way for me. And that is um, that every negative is actually a positive. Anything that's quote unquote not working is actually an opportunity to elevate the work and make the story better. And sometimes you have to write in the wrong direction to find just those wonderful gems that really, you know, make the story extraordinary. So um, my, the way I like to work is I always like to tell people what's working first, because sometimes when you're so close to a project, I will say this about me, if I've been writing something, you know, even if it's a pitch for my client, anything or an email, even, you know, if I'm really close to it and I know what I'm trying to say some, and, it's, and it feels like it's not working, sometimes it feels like nothing is working. So I think it's important to know, yes, you are doing this great. And here's, this is great. And this is great. And this is great. And then I'll move on and say, and here are some opportunities that I think you are some, uh, for you to take it even further. Um, there's, you know, things that are confusing or think, or opportunities to give us more about the character or further develop a thread. Um, so those, I like to talk in a very encouraging way. That's very supportive. There are a lot of people who like the kind of, uh, editorial feedback that it's like, just give it to me straight, you know, tell me what to cut, tell me what's not working and just give it to me on the, you know, straight. I'm probably not that agent for you if that's what you're looking for. I'm not going to tell you cut chapter 13. I hate you know, the scene in the end. You know, what, what did you do and name this character this? Instead, I try to work with the, um, with the writer or the creator to help them craft their own vision and make it really what they want it to be. I can be very prescriptive, but I'm always, I'm often trying to throw out ideas to trigger in their mind what they really want the story to be. So for example, say there's a, a female character and I can't tell what she thinks about the love interest. Does she like that person? <laughs> Does she think of them as a friend and nothing more? Does she hate them but secretly lust them? Like, you know, it's when it's just absent on the page and I can tell the author probably knows, but it's just not on the page then I will throw out a bunch of different interpretations of how I could see the story going, like, hmm, and just like the options I just gave for that girl character. And then I feel like it's up to the author then to say, huh, okay, Jennifer gave me these three options. Uh, nope, she's wrong on A, she's wrong on B, and she's wrong on C. All of her ideas are wrong. It's actually this. That's great. I want the, the creator to come up with what it really is and get it on the page so that we all know. <laughs> 
I'm going to steal some of that. I've been uh, leading uh, fiction workshops here at the Indiana Writers Center oh, um, and uh, working with uh, relatively newer writers most of the time. And, and that first class, when they get feedback from me, plus the other 10 people in the room and their eyes get real big, like, oh, I'm going to say exactly what you said. No, this feels like a negative, but these are all positives. These are yeah. these are opportunities for solution. It is. And I think that the problem with the editorial process is that it actually takes longer than any of us realize. It's just writing a story. It takes, it's especially a novel, it's layered, it's complex, it's long, and it just takes a lot to get it working on all the many levels for character arc, for plot, for voice, for language at the line level, um, for pacing, for dialogue. It just, there's a lot to it and it just takes a lot of revision and it's a lot of work. And it doesn't, it gets a little bit easier because you get smarter. I'm, I'm talking from the writer perspective, you get a little bit smarter as you go. Um, but it's not that um, Banneker Bones and the Alligator People has taken me a year and a half to write. No, it was done uh, about three months in. But the rewriting and the rewriting and the beta readers and the making sure that this is as finely crafted a novel as I can put in a steamed reader's hand, that takes far longer than the initial uh, inspiration in the, in the first draft. Unfortunately. Yeah. And that's not to say anything against the writer. Like just because you don't nail it on the first draft or the second or the fifth doesn't mean that it's not a valid project or that it has no merit. Um, it just takes a while to to practice it and get it right and to polish it and to and to let it blossom on the page. <laughs> but this is my tenth book. I should be perfect by now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I will say, and that's why going back to your question of like, how long will I work with a writer? I will work with them until we get it to where it needs to be because different projects need different, different amounts of revision. Let me ask you when I, I like hearing that your, your goal editorially, it sounds like is to, to encourage the author to create the book that they, that, that that's in their heart that they want to create. How often um, do you come back and suggest things because not necessarily because that's what the author most wants, um, but because you know of editors that are looking for this exact book if it only had this quality or that quality? Does that happen? Um, I would say it happens more on the front end. Like if I hear about something that an editor wants and I think my client might be really great at writing such a project, I'll let them know, hey, I heard that several people are looking for this kind of project and I think you would do a great job at it. Um, but I don't know about changing something per se to cater it to somebody's wish list. Um, I, I, I'm not gonna say never. Um, however, there are things that I have suggested to my clients um, and also in critiques and when meeting people at conferences that they might want to consider the market um, when working on their story in terms of certain elements. Um, probably most specifically, and this comes to diversity, is like if you're writing outside your cultural experience that you really understand that culture and that you've done your research and that you're, and that you're really, that you're doing it well. And also understanding why you're telling that story, why you are telling that story. That makes sense. That's a good looking out. I would 
an office should be happy to have an agent that's looking out for them and uh, helping them, helping them uh, button their shirt, comb their hair, send you wow. out of the world looking good. Don't let them, don't let them out there with their fly down. I mean, <laughs> if someone came to me with a story about a girl who is in love with vampires and also in love with a werewolf and it's a love triangle, I might say, <laughs> I might say that you might want to reconsider that plot. <laughs> I've heard there's a market for that sort of story. <laughs> or at least there was at one point. Well, right. They're cyclical and, you know, what, and trends are cyclical. So, you know, sometimes like, you know, we just came off a long dystopian trend and, you know, maybe it's time for dystopian again. I don't know. But, um, you know, if, if it's big and prominent out in the market right now, it's probably not the right project for the current, you know, for us to sell for two years later. However, you know, you know, it might be something you could sell in 10 years. So I try not to discourage. So if you, you've got a brilliant novel, maybe you do a round of submissions and say, oh, that, that didn't work out, but let's hang on to it and, and yeah. wait until uh, that, that trend starts to come back a little bit. Yeah, or especially with picture books, there's, um, you know, picture books, there's so many trends or like they might have, like, for example, they might have a lot of bear stories, for example. And so like maybe the publisher just published a bunch of bear stories and they don't want any more bear stories. So with picture books, you just need to be able to have a lot of different stories ready to go and and have a thick skin and know that it's just because it's a bear story. And <laughs> You don't need any right now. And so let's work on a skunk story. <laughs> well, that's an easy uh, fix, right? Just search and replace every time you see bear put in, I don't know, wolf. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Or like you bring up wolf, like maybe there's a lot of Little Red Riding Hood retellings right now. And um, anytime you do something like that, you just want to make sure that it's extraordinary and that it's different from what exists in the marketplace. But also, I will say that we live in a collective society right now where we are all, and I feel like the internet in some ways is compartmentalizing us, but in other ways it's bringing us together. And so we're all having the same kind of information being thrown at us. Um, and it's been uncanny to me that I sometimes I receive submissions that are essentially the same pitch, the same story idea from like, Tennessee, New York, and Alaska. You know these people aren't talking to each other. It's just how we're all processing our world. The execution is always different, but it's interesting to me that, you know, different people who are not even talking to each other are, are coming up with similar ideas. I think it's just, you know, we're, we're living in a time where we are processing our world and different and similar things are triggering ideas for us. Well, that makes sense. We're all kind of neurons in the hive mind. I guess so, yes. Well, help me uh, and help uh, esteemed audience kind of demystify the literary agent lifestyle for us. Um, because I know uh, when I first started and I've, I've talked to enough author authors in the uh, querying process that, you know, we've got our writer's market. Uh, we pulled up Middle Grade Ninja. We pulled up Predators and Editors. We're going through and trying to find the right agent. We're listening to podcasts like this. But there's still this lingering question of who is this person? What does an agent do? So what what does your average work day look like? What does your average work week look like? Yeah, so that's a great question. You know what? It's constantly, constantly changing. Um, I will just talk about what I've got on the plate for today, I guess. Um, this morning, I've been negotiating a contract for a client for a book I sold uh, last month. Um, 
I, and yesterday I also closed another contract, finished negotiating that contract and did signatures. Um, I have to do 10 critiques for an upcoming conference. Um, <laughs> I have uh, two, I've got actually four client manuscripts that I need to uh, read and give editorial notes for. I have- All this week or? Um, I'm going to be doing that over the next uh, two weeks, probably two or three weeks, yeah. Um, some of those are picture books. I've got some picture books as well. I'm gonna go on submission with uh, two projects tomorrow. Um, and I am constantly reading my query box. <laughs> so every day I, I receive, I'm a relatively new agent, so I receive about 10 to 15 queries per day. And I read, I read everything personally myself. I don't have an assistant. So I read everything and I try to, and with our agency, we have um, a policy where if you haven't heard from us within six weeks, it's a no. And I know that just is terrible. The radio silence is the worst. And I wanna tell everyone listening right now, I'm so sorry. I would really love to send everyone personalized responses with notes on your project because for everyone, I see potential in almost everything I get. The problem is, um, most of those things aren't ready for me. They're just not polished enough yet. They haven't been revised. I can tell the author still thinking through their story or still discovering their character. That's not a bad thing. It's just that you're not ready for me. And so sadly I have to pass. I also get a lot of projects that just aren't the right fit for my list. Like if you sent me a book about a concert pianist going to study with a private an elite private teacher. I can't take that because I've already sold that book or I've already got the, a book about a girl whose father's on death row. I've already got a kid who, I've already got the book about the kid who's studying sumo wrestling. <laughs> um, but so those are also reasons why I pass and I can't always, I, I can't respond personally to everyone. However, I am actively seeking clients and I do request a lot of manuscripts and I also read those. And those I tend to get a little bit further behind on because um, if I really like a project, I wanna spend some real time and read um, quite a bit to make sure that it is, to make sure whether or not it's a good fit for me. And so I will apologize to everyone that I have requested a manuscript. It takes me about eight weeks and now I'm pushing the 12 weeks to get back to people just because I have so much reading to do. <laughs> But theoretically, they'll appreciate that if they become your client, that you're prioritizing uh, your client's work over the uh, seeking out of new clients, right? Absolutely. But I think that, you know, being, especially when you're a new writer querying for the first time, um, you know, it does seem daunting when you just don't hear back or, you know, or someone has your manuscript forever. Like, oh, does it mean that they don't really like it? I will say for me, if I don't really like it or if it's not the right fit, you'll hear from me pretty quickly. It's when I do like it and think and might be wavering about it that it take longer to respond because I agonize over decisions, especially when I really like the voice and really see the potential. And then I'm trying to figure out, am I the right person? Do I have a vision for it? Can I bring value to the client? Can I help them with their story? There's a lot of projects I get where I love it and I can see all the potential and, um, but I just don't have the vision for it. We're also a very collaborative agency. So sometimes like I might get something and it's not right for me, but I'll share it with my colleagues because I know they might like it. And I've received, a, I've signed a lot of clients that way actually where I've had um, queries and projects passed to me because my other colleagues have fuller lists. 
and I'm building my list and so I'm hungry right now and so I've signed a number of clients that way. In fact, most recently I signed three new clients based on referrals from agents within my agency. So in that scenario, if um, somebody gets a rejection from you and they're thinking, oh, I have three more Jennifers to, to submit ah. to it, Andrea Brown. No. Um, is that a good idea? And obviously we don't want to do multiple submissions to uh, agents no. within the, our, the same agency. Our agency is a collaborative agency. So if you query me, we share work internally. So a no from me is a no from our entire agency because I've already shared it. So if you, if you query again, it's not helpful because we've already looked. So that, at that point would just be an instant form response or just a delete? Um, wait, sorry, what do you mean? I assume that if, if you get a query and you realize that that's already been discussed with one of the other agents uh, or maybe a couple of agents, is that just an automatic form no yeah. uh, delete? Well, it's just against our submission policy guidelines. Um, so our, our submission guidelines are this. You would need to choose one agent from our agency to query, um, but know that we share work internally, so don't send to multiples. And um, and then a no from one is a no from all. However, you are allowed to, or you can submit new work, a different project to us, um, or to a different. Like if you sub, if you submitted a picture book to me and I passed, you could submit a different picture book to another client, another agent at our agency. You also have an opportunity to significantly revise the project you submitted initially and resubmit it six months later. So say you submit a novel to me and I pass and you revise it, you can submit that revision to me. It's gotta be significant six months later. And for if you're resubmitting a project and you've, you only sent the first 10 pages the first time and you significantly revise, please revise those first 10 pages too. You might've revised the rest of the novel, but remember I didn't read the rest of the novel, I only read the first 10 pages. But here is the good news. If you send me 10 pages and I read it and I'm like, mm, it's not quite there yet and not for me. And then you significantly revise and you send it to me again. It might be exactly what I'm looking for. It might be brilliant. I haven't, you know, I've only read the first 10 pages. I might then request your novel and realize I want to have it. So really take advantage of that opportunity to, to revise and to resubmit. We like to see uh, authors who revise and who are willing to work on their craft. It shows tenacity, it shows perseverance, it shows that they are committed to their craft and committed to having a career, and that's what I'm looking for. So I like to see people who revise. On that note, be judicious about my time. <laughs> I have a lot of, there are a lot of uh, writers, and I adore them, but they send me queries a lot, especially a lot of the picture book people, because picture books are short, you can write them really quickly. Um, I would be judicious about how many picture books you send or how many projects you send. You don't want to pummel the agent with, <laughs> you know, 15 queries in a year. Um, instead, like, give me a chance to have a break and then send me again later. And But make sure you're always putting your very, very best foot forward and that's really polished and ready to go. As editorially as I am and as much as I want to help someone elevate their story, I am looking for things that I am, can sell and that are ready to sell. That, that's the ideal. Got a bunch of questions uh, for you now. Well, let's start okay. with um, just, I, I never want to do how to write a query letter because that's boring to me. I'm, I'm over it. Uh, check out Janet Reed, um, the Query Shark. 
plenty of great resources online for how to write a query. Um, but if you're getting 10 to 15 emails every day, and some days I'm sure more, um, are you checking those emails every day? Yes, I, I, I personally read every day because otherwise I'll have 60. <laughs> and that's a little overwhelming. And, um, and I try to, like, I'll read quickly. If it's something, if it's an easy no, then it's an easy no. Um, but there are a lot of things that aren't an easy no, and I might read something several times to make sure that I'm not missing something that would be a great fit for me. So what uh, what are your ways to decide what's an easy no, what's not? How do you winnow that list down to something manageable with everything else you have to do? So some easy no's for me are if it's something I would never do, if it's a nonfiction economics book, and yes, I do get those queries, <laughs> um, that's an easy no. Um, like I said, if it's ex if it's spot on something very similar to something I already represent, I'm going to have to pass, even if it's the best thing ever, because I already represent it. Um, let's see. Another, um, if I if the draft is really rough and it's just not even close to being ready for publication, that's also an easy no for me because I'm I'm really drawn to beautiful writing and and polished writing. So that's an easy no. Um, let's see. Even but, if the concept is killer? Uh, concepts. You know, I am I am fairly open. I, I love a good story. So if someone can hook me with a great story, um, I will be pulled in. I, I can't think of any categories that I am flat out no. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty open. I'm perhaps not the best high fantasy, super high fantasy agent. And that's because I'm just not as well read in the category. And I, I don't know all the sub genres. And if you're writing that kind of fantasy, you really deserve someone who's deeply engrossed in the category and really understands it. Um, so I'm probably a better grounded fantasy, like, you know, magic in our world. I love those kind of stories. If you're working on one, please send it to me. Um, and in fact, I just sold one. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think if there's anything that's absolutely not there. I'll tell you, there are a couple things that are a fast no for me. And that is anything that's gratuitously violent against children. I, it's a no. And anything that's misogynistic and like deeply violent against women, again, gratuitous, just that, that will be a no for me as well. However, I love dark stories and I will go dark and gritty and horror. I love it, bring it on, scare me. But anything that's misogynist in just a disgusting way, I'll have to say no. I remember one of your favorite movies is It Follows, correct? Yes, I love It Follows. It's the ultimate STD. <laughs> I love that movie. And that is not light fair. That is that is dark. Yeah, but there's also a lot of humor in that movie, right? So it's, a, you know, but I'll go really dark. Like one of my favorite books is this is an adult project, but it's called The Devil All the Time by Donald Ray Pollock. And it, I mean, there is murder and mayhem and <laughs> um, and all of the characters are depraved individuals with no redeeming qualities. And that book is a book where everything goes dark at the end. I love it. <laughs> um, the writing is incredible. Donald Ray Pollock has an amazing voice. He's a master plotter. He's a master at character. 
Every single character in that book, even the bus driver, you know who that character is, what they want, why they can't get it, and what makes them tick. It is unbelievable. Um, but so I do like dark, but just misogynist or really horrible violence against children. I, I can't take. I hope that's an instant note for those people. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Hopefully we're living in that world. I don't know. <laughs> so when uh, when you're evaluating a query, are you looking first at the letter to see what the overall book's going to be about? Or do you immediately go to those first 10 pages? Um, I tend to do a mixture of both. I tend to read first because for me, it's all about the writing and the story. Um, I will read the pitch and um, I'm always looking for a great pitch. Um, that helps me as well. It's easier to sell a book that's got a good, easy to understand, easy to convey pitch. Um, but I, a combination of the above. I will say that there are a lot of writers that I think that are amazing writers who can't pitch to save their lives. Um, because pitching is hard and pitching is an art. On the flip side, there are a lot of pitchers who are incredible, throwing a great pitch out there and then can't write to save their lives. So of course, I would love to find someone who can do both, but for me, what's more important is the pages and the writing. I can help with the pitch. Gotcha, so that's pretty much where your eye is gonna is be headed first, is, is toward those 10 pages. Yeah. I will so say the other thing that is a turn, well, a couple other easy no's are if they've already queried someone else and they're not following our uh, agency guidelines, I need to say no. Um, and also, I there are always some people who lie. <laughs> in their queries, um, which is really funny. I'm known as the sleuth at my agency, so I, I research everybody. I research you and I see what your presence is on, online and I try to understand who people are because when I'm gonna offer representation and work with someone, you know, I wanna have a good relationship with you and I wanna get a sense of who you are and how you present yourself to the world. Um, and I've had some people, it's incredible, like send me the same manuscript again and again and again They'll retitle it, they'll use a different email address, <laughs> send me a different pitch with it, but the pages are exactly the same. And I always think, why not put that time into the revision instead of this clever masquerading of, <laughs> of different people in the pitch and the query letter? I don't know. If that person put that kind of time into their revision, I'd probably sign them. But instead, I'm, I'm more like, wow, I can't believe they thought they'd trick me with a different email address. <laughs> <laughs> what, uh, why would you want to sign with a literary agent that's easily fooled? <laughs> yeah, I, don't, I don't know. On the other side, though, I think there are times where people will um, embellish or exaggerate when they and they don't mean it that way but it does it is misleading for example i have some people say i'm critically acclaimed because they have received some kind of review from friends on you know a self-published book or i'm a best-selling author because they've sold their 100 copies of their self-published book and those accomplishments are awesome and amazing but they're not necessarily what we would think of as critically acclaimed or best-selling fair enough so without giving away your uh, trade secrets, what uh, what kind of sleuthing are you doing? Oh, um, I mean, of course I Google people and it's amazing what you can find out about people on Google. <laughs> um, especially when all of us have, uh, have social media, many of us have social media presences. There's LinkedIn, there's Twitter, there's Instagram, there's Facebook. 
Um, if you're a writer, you're probably publishing some short stories, you're publishing articles. So that's how I, I look people up. I mean, anybody could do it. I'm just pretty good. I have a journalism background. I'm pretty good at finding people and finding things and kind of going down the rabbit hole to figure out who they are. One thing that I'm also looking for is someone who is very professional. If someone is, has, um, a, a social media presence that I worry might be problematic. And I don't even know how that, I don't know where they're mean in the community, where they're not supportive, where they're saying egregious things. That would maybe be a red flag for me. I'm not sure if that's someone I'm going to be able to work with well, if they're putting offensive material out there. And I will say most people are not like that. Not like that at all. I've had, I love the people of the kid lit community and I've had a very good experience with everyone I've met so far. Well, I assume but by the time you get to that point that. where you're, I'm sorry. I said, but be careful what you put on social media. It's public and it's out there forever. What, well, let's talk a little bit about authors and, and social media because it is really easy to blow yourself up, which is one reason I'm almost never on, on Twitter when I get a new Twitter follower, I pity them. Well, you're going to get a couple of tweets a week, maybe. Lots of likes here and there. Um, I wasted two hours of a morning arguing that uh, The Dark Knight Rises was the weakest of the three Christopher Nolan uh, Batman movies, and I'm getting blown up left and right by tweeters. I'm like, dude, I, I'm on your side. I bought the movie. I've got the action figures right here. I supported it, but it's it's the weakest of the three movies. And after that, I was just, ah, forget it. If that's, if that's going to suck up two hours of my time, I don't have time for a, an actual substantive conversation. So what, what are things that you see authors doing online? How should they best utilize social media? And what are some uh, no-nos to absolutely avoid? I think, that, I think that it's just important to be judicious with social media and to really think before you tweet. I think tweeting is a very, can be very impulsive and like, like you have an opinion and put it out there. <laughs> and maybe, Think a moment and take a breath before you put it out there, especially if you're um, feel emotional about something, even something like the dark night. Uh, anytime you put out an opinion, you're inviting dialogue. And I would just say, make sure that you're willing to have that dialogue and you want to have, and you want to get in the conversation. If you don't, don't put it on social media. You don't need to. Um, on the flip side, I think social media can be amazing. Um, and one of the things that I decided that I was going to be on Twitter and that I wanted to be um, a positive voice in the community and I wanted to put forth how I feel I am editorially and put it online. So um, I put a lot of writing tips. If I am working on something and I notice a a spot where I'm seeing a lot of queries where people are struggling with a certain issue. I'll put out some advice about it. I um, I like to give tips on how to pique my interest or things that I'm looking for. And I like to give a lot of support and hope because publishing is a difficult business. It's rife with rejection and it's hard to persevere. And so I see myself as a cheerleader for my clients to keep them going, especially if we're getting a lot of rejection. And no, I believe in you. Let's keep going. We can do this. And I try to do that in my Twitter feed as well. I think that um, if you are a positive voice in the community and you're supportive, it's really important to support your fellow writers, support your fellow creators, and 
if you like a book, let everyone know. And I think that's more important than letting everyone know that you don't like a book or you don't like this, or you don't like that. What, you know, make recommendations and positive recommendations. If you've figured out something in your revision process or your creation process or your writing process that really works for you, share it. It might be helpful for other people. Um, also, you know, connect with other writers, follow them, you know, celebrate when they hit great milestones. Connect with librarians. They're going to help you promote your work. Connect with teachers. Same thing, especially if you're writing picture books or middle grade. It's a great way to connect with the gatekeepers who that are going to help promote your book to readers. Um, so I think there can be a lot of positive things. If you're an illustrator, it's great to throw out your, um, especially Instagram and, and Twitter too, to throw out like sketches or a new drawing or um, you know, something about your process, that can be a great way to promote yourself in a very positive way and people will respond well. That makes sense. And I'm always trying to figure out what the, uh, uh, what the smartest way is to use social media. I always chuckle when I see authors that are um, blowing up a book that, oh, I really dislike this book. And okay, that's, that's a valid opinion, but look forward to bumping into that author at a conference. That's gonna be a fun conversation. <laughs> Well, that goes back to my point where, you know, make sure it's a conversation you want to have. Like anything that you put on Twitter, you're opening yourself to a dialogue. And if you want to have that dialogue, great. And if you, but if you don't want to, maybe don't put it on Twitter. Maybe call up your friend and talk about it instead. What well, uh, brings us to marketing, going ahead and, and getting together your, uh, your posse of, of teachers, librarians, anybody that's going to help you get the word out once the book is published. What recommendations do you give to authors in preparing to market their book before it comes out and after? Um, well, we're just get, gearing up with that process for um, for Sumo Joe and um, Nat is, you know, is the illustrator. And so we've talked about like different talks that he could give to kids and show how to how he drew Sumo Joe and like some of the research that went into getting all of the details of Sumo right. And believe me, there were so many details. You would never know it looking at the book itself, but like he meticulously researched, you know, the different um, uniforms and how the how the ring works and the different moves. It's incredible. It's incredible the amount of detail that goes into these books. So he's preparing, you know, to be able to talk about that and address that with both with kids and also with teachers and parents. Um, like I said, he um, is um, on social media. You can connect with librarians and teachers. I have a friend who's got a middle grade that came out last year. She was able to connect via social media with several other um, middle grade writers and they created a um, spooky middle grade group and they've been doing talks together, which has been fantastic. They do panels together and it's been a great way to promote their work. So I think that um, anything that you can bring to the table that shows what you brought to the book in terms of research or experience um, and thinking about some great talks that you can give both to kids and to parents and uh, gatekeepers, as well as doing talks like this about process is a great way to promote. So when uh, when an author comes to you with a query and they've got their their ten pages are immaculate, they've, they've, they've sorted that. Um, it raises a question in my mind, and it's got a dynamite first line that's that just raises multiple questions and is perfect voice and evokes this fabulous atmosphere, and I'm in, I'm in. 
<laughs> yeah, let's slow down there. As uh, when you're looking at, at, at ten pages, uh, and the you know the skeptical author in me says, "Well, if I could say what I needed to say in ten pages, I wouldn't have written an entire book." <laughs> but <laughs> I know that when you're uh, looking at uh, manuscripts day in and day out, uh, and I think one of the smartest things an author can do is go work for a literary magazine, go someplace where there are submissions, you sort through a huge pile of submissions and you will start to get a sense of, of what works and what doesn't. What What is it about those first 10 pages that might make you continue reading or that might immediately throw you out a page or two in? Okay, so I am a sucker for a great first line that immediately raises a question in my, in my head that makes me wanna read forward and better yet two or three. Um, if it can give me a sense of character and voice, even better. If you're if you're a master of your craft and that first sentence captures the entire story in that one line, I'm in. And I've got a few examples for that. Um, for example, um, this is an adult title, but it's a great opening line. That's um, for Everything I Never Told You by Celeste Ng. The, the opening line is, Lydia is dead. They don't know this yet. Beautiful. That's yeah. great. And the whole story is about the about this family whose daughter has gone missing and she's dead, but they don't know. And just in that, but in that question, in that line, you raise it and you think like, who's Lydia? Why is she dead? Why don't they know? Like already you've got multiple, multiple questions that's pulling you into the story. Um, she's also a, a gorgeous writer. So it's, it's amazing. Um, but so a great first line, and I always ask for one, and I don't get that many, so you can, I challenge everyone, send me your great first line, raise a question in my mind, pull me in. Um, I also like a great inciting incident, and I like to be launched into a scene that gives me context for the story and helps me understand the stakes for the character. Um, I get a lot of, I really love, I'm a big action junkie and a big suspense junkie, so I will get a lot of early submissions where, the person is, the character is running for their lives and they're dripping with sweat and their heart is racing and there's a dark shadow following them and oh my gosh. And it's exciting, cool action, but who is this person? Why are they, why are they running? Why, who's, what's the dark shadow? You know, what, what's the stakes? And so those are kind of questions that are not good questions for me <laughs> because I, there's there's not enough to ground me in the scene and make me care about what's happening. And especially when I see it all the time and I see a lot of stories opening like that, it's just, it's not interesting and it's not pulling me in. However, if you have someone who's running for their lives and I know who they are and why, and I know who's running after them and why, I'm gonna be in. So I think giving me enough context to really, like connect with the character right away, understand who they are, what their stakes are, and then have something big happen. What is gonna, what's gonna launch the story? If that can happen in the first 10 pages, I'm in, and I will want to read further. And really what great writing at the line level. And really what, great dialogue. <laughs> what, uh, what are some good ways to avoid, you know, just doing an exposition dump. Here's everything you need to know about the character. Here's a copy of their report card. Here's their dental records. Uh, but what are just some good ways to keep the action moving, getting toward the inciting incident to let you know there's a character that's worth reading about? So Rob, if I had the secret sauce for that. <laughs> 
I want to know about that more than I want to know if you've seen a flying saucer. <laughs> <laughs> so here's the thing. A very one of my mentors and a fabulous um, writer, Lewis Busby, once told me, and this was long after I got out of my MFA and had taken workshops from Tom Jenks, who was the editor of Narrative Magazine and worked at Paris Review. I've like, I've worked with a lot of people. And Lewis said to me, Jennifer, you know how we're all told, you know, show, don't tell. And I'm like, yeah. He's like, the thing is, you've got to show and tell. You've got to have both. You've got to have narration. You've got to tell some things and you've got to show. So it's got to be that sweet combination of both. We need to know the character's feelings. We need to know what they're thinking. We need to have the action, though. And I think that a lot of writers will... Um, a lot of early writers will think show don't tell so they'll use a gesture or dialogue to convey what's going on in the character's head so for example um, my heart was racing okay so why is my heart racing amphetamines I, I don't exactly <laughs> you don't know it could be that I'm high on amphetamines it could be that I just snorted a lot of coke it could be that I'm just about to go out on stage for the very first time and I'm terrified. It could be that I'm about to take a big test. It could be that I'm hanging from the side of a cliff and my fingers are letting go. It could be that I am just about to have the biggest orgasm of my life. It could be that I'm having a heart attack. It could be any number of things. The thing is, is that a lot of these gestures or physical responses that we associate with excitement or fear or love or lust, they don't actually tell us that much. We need to have, in addition to the response, what we really need to know is what is the person thinking or feeling. So that's a little bit of the show don't tell. Um, similarly, there's a, a lot of times in early uh, pages, I'll, uh, and by early I mean rough drafts, I'll see people conveying stuff through dialogue. Um, that like they'll convey information through dialogue or they'll convey what they think are feelings through dialogue. So the same kind of thing. Um, I love you. Okay, so what does that mean? Do I sincerely love you as my brother and you're, you know, you're this wonderful family member of mine? Am I just saying I love you because I want to get in your pants? <laughs> Am I Am I These are wacky young adult and middle grade books that you're reading. <laughs> well, in the young adult, in the young adult, that might be happening. Maybe not in the middle grade. Uh, you know, am I saying I love you um, because I'm in love with you and it's the first time I've ever said it to you? Am I saying to you like I love you, mom? Like, is it just a throwaway line? Do I not really mean it? Do I mean it sarcastically? What I mean is, there's so many different ways that we can interpret that, interpret that dialogue, and not just the literal sense. And so. As long as so the the trick is to have the layers that give us not just the dialogue, not just the physical responses, but also the motivation behind it. And and yet you don't want to have too much information and you don't want to drag down the pacing. So I think that that is a lot of revision and just working through how much does the how much does the reader need to know at what point in the story to keep the story moving and keep them grounded with enough context and informed and yet not be, like you said, a big info dump. And maybe like we don't need to know that Jennifer's dad was a farmer and she, but she grew up in town and you know, she ate venison three times a week when she was a kid, like, and she got sent away to boarding school. Maybe we don't need to know all of that 
in the first 10 pages. Just need to know why her uh, heart is racing. <laughs> exactly. We just need to know that she's jacked up on 16 cups of coffee and about to go on stage for the first time in front of 200 people and she's about to pee her pants. <laughs> I'm uh, playing coy a little bit for the uh, benefit of the hopefully for esteemed audience. Um, but something I see in workshop a lot is exactly what you're describing uh, is um, uh, exposition being conveyed through dialogue and when i see that i think to myself oh this is a an author who is not reading enough they're spending their time watching netflix or watching television because in television sometimes you have to do that you have to have the hey is your wife still sick with cancer yep going to steer chemo tonight yep hello fred my best friend that i've known for 30 years oh hi yes. <laughs> so i agree with you and I also think sometimes it's where the character, like the writer is still think, thinking through their story and they still, they just haven't quite figured it out yet. It's just, that's an opportunity to, like when I look at something like that, that's an opportunity to shift that dialogue into narrative. And it can be summarized usually very quickly. Like, is what was the one you just said? His wife is still sick. Oh, also a wacky picture book idea. Does your wife still have cancer? Did you go to see her at chemotherapy tonight the way you've done the last five weeks? Right. <laughs> sure. Right. Hello, so, Fred, my best friend for 30 years. That's my favorite. But those are the, those, <laughs> you're right. I think the more you read, the more, especially like really look at mentor texts, look at Look at books that you love that have a great opening chapter and see how much, you know, how much do they reveal in that opening chapter? How quickly does it take to get to the inciting incident? How much backstory do you get? How much um, narrative versus uh, dialogue? And just see how they master it and then steal from that craft. <laughs> Why not? And then make it your own. Makes sense to me. Jennifer, this has been a fascinating conversation. I could talk to you all day and I'm just flown by and I'm looking at the clock and I know that we're, we're going to have to wrap things up because you have so many more things that you still need to do today. Not a lot of reading. <laughs> let me uh, let me save time and, and, and just ask you this. What is the most crucial piece of advice that you wish that you could give to as many authors out there who might be listening or watching as possible? Um, so I think it's gonna be threefold. You mentioned one, and that is read. Read as much as you can. Read widely. Read deeply in your in the category that you're interested in, but also read as you know, read all kinds of different categories and read really good writing. Um, secondly, you know, find critique groups and work with other readers. I'm sorry, with other writers. And I have a lot of people tell me like, oh, I'm having trouble finding someone who's at my level. Um, that doesn't matter. I think that people can learn so much from reading writing that is early or rough drafts. It can be so instructive because here's the thing. If you look at someone else's project and there's problems with it that need to be resolved through revision, a lot of times you'll see that and you'll know how it could possibly be fixed and you'll have editorial suggestions for them. And at the same point in time, you might realize, I am doing that too, but I'm too close to it. And I didn't realize I was doing it. But now that you've seen how to help someone else address the issue, you can also turn around and take that same editorial suggestion you have for the other person and apply it to your own work. So I can't tell you how much I have learned about writing from reading 
a lot of very early submissions that are rough drafts. You can see what why things don't work and what would help to elevate them. So I really encourage everyone to work with other writers and think editorially and and become a better editor yourself. It will help you in revising your own work. Um, and then three is just don't give up. Keep writing, keep revising, work on your craft. And every time you write, when you write an email, craft it with beautiful prose. <laughs> when you're working on a rough draft, write and revise. And don't be, and don't worry about, oh, it's taking me longer, or this is so many drafts, or I feel like I'm not getting anywhere. I truly believe in the power of revision. I have seen drafts that I thought would never see the light of day become bestsellers. Revision is really magical and persevere, don't give up. Um, one of my professors in grad school said, the difference between those who end up, who will get published someday and the, those who don't are the ones that kept writing and kept trying and kept querying and kept going for it and didn't let rejection or fear stop them. So keep fighting the good fight. <laughs> that is about as hopeful a notice we could as we could possibly end on fight the good fight. <laughs> Jennifer, where uh, can esteemed audience find you online? What's your Twitter handle? Where else yeah. can they find you? About? Okay, great. Yeah, I'm on Twitter a lot. I met um, it's at March Soloway, and um, I'm gonna spell it. Well, I guess it will be available on, but um, it's Soloway is a weird name. It sounds like it should have two L's or an A. Um, and if someone ever makes a mistake querying me, don't worry. I'm not going to hold it against you. It's okay. I mean, try to get it right. But if, <laughs> if you mistype Soloway, everyone does. Um, but it's, so it's March as in the month, M-A-R-C-H, S as in Sam, O, L as in Larry, O-W-A-Y. Uh, you can also find me on our website, which is andreabrownlit.com. And you can email, send me queries to Soloway at andreabrownlit.com. Dot com. I have also done a ton of podcasts like this one um, and a lot of interviews and um, Google me. Try and see what you can find. <laughs> Do a little bit of that uh, Jennifer March Swallowway is sleuthing yourself. Exactly. <laughs> The sleuther becomes the sleuth. I love it. And I encourage actually everyone to do that for any agent you're looking for. Look and see, like it's hard when you're a, when you're a writer just desperate to get an agent, but you're actually a paying customer and you deserve quality service and you deserve the right fit for you. Really think about what you're looking for, who would be the right fit, and um, and try and see. A lot of a lot of us do conferences. I'm at conferences a lot. You can come meet me in person. You can find me on podcasts. You can follow me on Twitter. I would do that with any agent you're interested in. It's a little bit like dating without or getting married without dating. And so you want to know as much as you can before you get married. Oh, this is Indiana. We do married without dating. <laughs> I was friends with my husband for a long time before we even started dating. So I knew what I was getting myself into, and so did he. <laughs> well, yeah, no, Mrs. Kent and I were five years. I, I don't buy a car without at least test driving it for a while. I, I made sure. <laughs> exactly. Jennifer, thank you so very much for, for making time for me and for esteemed audience. I've learned a lot. I know this is an episode I'm going to be re-listening to and, and, and taking oh, notes to, to remember all the great things that you said. Um, for uh, those curious, check out uh, more at middlegradeninja.com. You can read Jennifer's original seven-question interview there. 
Uh, you can also find interviews with hundreds of uh, editors, literary agents, uh, and of course, authors, uh, our favorite folks that you'll you'll want to check out. Uh, as always, make sure you download your free ebook of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees. If you like it, leave me a review. I'd greatly appreciate that. Um, Jennifer, we've got a sign-off phrase that I've been asking guests to say, if you wouldn't mind. And okay. the sign-off phrase, and, and in order to justify the ninja theme of the show, is hi-ya and what have you. Will you sign us off? Hi-ya and what have you. <laughs>